the Ridge Life Podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. All right, well, we're going to be looking at several passages of Scripture here this morning. And uh, I had mentioned the fact that uh, for a few weeks, we were going to be looking at uh, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I really wanted to focus more on what uh, that is, not so much in the, uh, the details, you know, chronological details of, of uh, you know, this is going to happen before this is going to happen before this is going to happen. But I really wanted to turn our focus more towards Jesus Christ, because that is who is returning. Uh, we need not be looking around, you know, for... Uh, the Antichrist or, um, you know, this particular thing to take place. I mean, Jesus did tell us, you know, the, the, the seasons, right? You'll know these things. But we need to be looking for Christ. That's what we need to be turning our attention to and focus on. And uh, last week, we looked at uh, the fact of remembering who Christ is and his coming, Right? He's the resurrected, crucified Savior that is coming back. Uh, he's coming back as uh, being faithful and true. He's coming back as, the, as the, the bridegroom ready to take his bride. And this week, um, I, I really want to focus in more on when Jesus comes, what is he going to do? When he comes back, what is he going to do? And you know, God's word has, has quite a, a bit, a lot to say about the second coming of our Savior. And we need not be in the dark in, in any of it. Uh, because even though it's a, it's a profound, great mystery, uh, it's also filled with several details about what that is actually going to look like. Uh, in fact, in the book of Revelation, it reminds us, in Revelation 1.3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so this morning, this is what I'd like for you to take away with you. When Jesus returns, he will do exactly as Scripture says. When Jesus returns, he will do exactly as scripture says. So what will Jesus do when he comes? Well, here's the first thing. Number one, the dead in Christ are raised and those in Christ are gathered with them. In God's word, there are two great chapters dealing with this future resurrection. Uh, One of them is found in 1 Corinthians 15, which is really the the great resurrection chapter, talking about the gospel, how Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again. And then it talks about the future resurrection uh, that believers have that are in Christ. The other one uh, is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. And uh, if you've been at a funeral recently, uh, maybe you've heard at the graveside, I know this is one of the things that I do at the graveside, is I usually talk about one of these two passages out of either 1 Corinthians 15 or 1 Thessalonians 4, talking about that here is our brother or sister in the Lord who has died, they have fallen asleep, and they will be resurrected. Uh, it talks about that the, uh, the dead in Christ will rise. And I want to give you some truths about Christ's return and what he will do as it's found here in 1 Thessalonians 4. So if you're there with me, let's turn over there. And we're going to look at uh, verses 13 through 15. 
Look what uh, Paul writes here to the church at Thessalonica. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And so first of all, we have this promise of Christ coming and a future resurrection. Why? Because Christ himself resurrected from the dead. You see, when Paul states, look what he says, for since we believe, we believe. There's no uncertainty in Paul's language here. There's, there's not this thing of like, well, we're, we're kind of really hoping for, for this. He says, for since we believe. Now notice where Paul places that emphasis on. He says this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that, what? Jesus died and rose again. He says Jesus. Now, why only the name of Jesus here? Why doesn't Paul say we believe in Christ Jesus or the Christ? Why only just Jesus. It's interesting that Paul only used the name Jesus only one other time in this letter in 1 Thessalonians, his first name only in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 in connection with his resurrection. But why does he do that? Well, he does that to show us the fact that our faith in Christ's coming is based on the historical facts of his life, his death, and his resurrection. You see, Jesus Christ is the only one who is resurrected from the dead. So if he says something, he has total authority in what he says because he resurrected from the dead. And so when we place the emphasis on Jesus, we're not talking about some mythological uh, person here. We're talking about a historical person, Jesus resurrected from the dead. And so we can place that emphasis on the historical fact of who Jesus Christ is, that he resurrected from the dead. And so Paul's point is that Jesus' bodily return is just as certain as his physical death, his burial and resurrection, which are historical validated facts. It's interesting that Paul says that Jesus died, but Christians have fallen asleep. Did you catch that? Look at the text again. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are dead. No. He says they're asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, for since we believe that Jesus fell asleep. No. He says that he died. Why the difference there? See, Paul seems deliberate when he contrasts Jesus' death over against believers' sleep. Why? Well, because it was Jesus who bore the full wrath of God for us dying in our place, is what 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4 
teaches us that he died for our sins and that he was buried and he rose again. And so if our trust is in him to bear our sins, then physical death then becomes not a curse, but more like sleep. This sleep is not a soul sleep as uh, you know, Seventh-day Adventists teach. Uh, nowhere do you find soul sleep uh, mentioned here in scripture. Uh, we have several references that teaches us. Second Corinthians 5, 8, Paul says, thus we are full of courage and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He said that he wanted to depart and to be with Christ in Philippians 1.23. Jesus told the repentant thief on the cross in, in Luke 23.43, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me where? In paradise, with the Lord. And when Stephen was stoned to death, he cried out in Acts 7.59 and 60, Lord Jesus, receive my sleep. No, receive my spirit. Having said this, he fell asleep. And as Paul goes on to say in 1 Thessalonians 5.10, whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. And so Paul's point in our text is that our resurrection depends on Christ's resurrection. You see, as Jesus told the disciples in John 14, 19, because I live, you will live also. Or as Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 6, 14, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus is literally, literally this way, through Jesus. Not fallen asleep in Jesus, we have fallen asleep through Jesus. And so the meaning seems to be that just as Jesus' death was in the hands of God, so is the death of saints in Jesus' hands. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead, so Jesus will raise believers. And so when Christ returns, what will he do? He will resurrect those that have fallen asleep. What a sight that would be, right? In fact, it already happened one time previous before that, remember? When Jesus resurrected from the grave, it says the Old Testament saints came out of the graves. Can you imagine? What is going on here? It's going to happen. It's a reality. Secondly, we are certain of Christ's return and our future resurrection and gathering with him because we have his word on it. Paul adds in verse 15, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, For this we declare to you by a word from who? The Lord. We have this certainty because it was the Lord himself who has declared it. These words refer to what follows concerning the order of the resurrection when Christ returns. And there are many who disagree on the order of events, on how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and all those types of things. And Paul's not concerned about that here. He wants your focus to be turned to the event that Christ is going to resurrect the dead, and we can have his word on it because he himself resurrected from the dead. Paul calls these truths, all these truths in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, a mystery, 
which means something that had not previously been revealed. But however we understand these order of events, how they're going to take place, Paul is emphasizing that he's not speculating here. He's not offering his opinion. Rather, he's relating us to the direct word of the Lord. And so this makes the promise of his coming and our being raised up with him certain. Notice what else Paul says about those who are alive and who remain. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpets of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. I love these words here. To meet the Lord, we will always be with the Lord. It'll be wonderful to be reunited with our loved ones who have died in Christ and to be with all of the saints from the past. But the best part of Christ's return is not just this reunion of our loved ones. You know what the best part of our reunion is? To be with Christ. That's what we're supposed to be looking forward to, to be with Christ, to be in his presence, to always now be with him. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus reminded us that he is always with us, even unto the end of the age, spiritually speaking. But now our eyes will behold Jesus Christ physically. Touch him. Talk with him. Worship him. We will be in his presence continually. We will see him face to face is what 1 Corinthians 13, 12 reminds us of. We're reminded as Jesus prayed in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. I love what John wrote in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. The instant we see Jesus in his glory, we will be forever transformed into his likeness. Salvation will be totally, fully complete then. We will be in glorified bodies, changed completely, never having the presence of sin in our life ever again. We'll be free from sin, sickness, and death, and all of our loved ones in Christ will also be Transform. So here's a Bible truth that I'd like for you to take away with you. Jesus' resurrection and return gives the believer great hope in times of uncertainty and grief. You think of our believer, our, our fellow brothers and sisters there who are believers in Afghanistan and the things that they are going through right now. 
What does the truth of Jesus' return mean to them? It gives them great hope in times of uncertainty and grief. In your own life, think about all the things that have gone on in the past year, year and a half. A lot of uncertainty. How does Jesus' resurrection give us hope? How does his future return give us hope? Because we can rely upon his truthfulness. We can trust in his truthfulness of who he says that he is. Here's the second thing. He will establish his kingdom. When Jesus Christ returns, he will establish his kingdom. The second coming of Christ uh, is a major doctrine that is both found in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's all throughout Scripture. In several Scriptures throughout, it speaks of Christ's coming kingdom. In Psalm 22, 23, and 24, which is really known as the, the trilogy, this trilogy of Psalms, we see in Psalm 22, speaks of his work of Jesus as being the good shepherd, and he gives his life, dying on the cross for our sins. In Psalm 23, it speaks of Jesus as being the great shepherd. And he's this one who is, is, is leading us along and he's, and, he's, and he's providing for us and he's taking care of us. But then in Psalm 24, it describes Christ as the king of glory, the chief shepherd who will enter the gates of Jerusalem. Another major revelation is given in Psalm 72, revealing Christ's reign over the entire earth. After describing how he will judge the people, defend the afflicted, and deliver the righteous, the psalm continues and it says this, In his days the righteous will flourish. Prosperity will abound till the moon is no more. Wow. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The desert tribes will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. All kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. The psalm concludes in verses 17 through 19 by stating that all nations will be blessed through him and that the whole earth will be filled with his glory. Another major passage dealing with Christ and his second coming is found in Isaiah 11 where the righteous reign of Christ and the blessings of the millennial kingdom are revealed Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 through 14 states that the second coming marks the termination of the times of the Gentiles and the beginning of the reign of God's kingdom on earth. Listen to what Daniel says. He says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. No cheaters allowed. 
This passage, as all others make the second coming of Christ, makes it clear that it refers to an event that is not yet fulfilled that would consummate the plan of God for the ages. The revelation of Christ at his second coming is painted very graphically for us in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. John writes, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flaming fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself, he is dressed in fine linen, in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So what does the millennial kingdom look like? What does this, what does this kingdom of God look like? It's interesting that after Jesus Christ resurrected, that the disciples asked him, they said, Lord, are you now, are you now going to restore the glory of Israel? They were looking for that kingdom. And he says, no, it's not time yet. Not time yet. Christ is going to return. And what is that kingdom going to look like? The millennial kingdom is primarily going to be a political kingdom. Though it's going to have several spiritual aspects about it, Jesus Christ is going to be king of kings who has come to reign over the earth. And because it's an earthly kingdom with Christ on the throne, it obviously cannot be fulfilled in this present age right now because he hasn't returned yet. But when he returns, it says that he will put his feet on Mount Olive and he will set down on the very throne of David and he will rule supremely. Jesus Christ will serve as King of kings, Lord of lords. He will fulfill all of the promises by sitting on David's throne that's found for us in 2 Samuel 7, 16, Psalm 89, 20 through 37, Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 16, and Jeremiah 33, verses 19 through 21. In addition to reigning over Israel as the son of David, we find that Christ is also king of kings over the entire earth. And this includes, of course, the Gentile world. Psalm 72, 8 states, he will rule from sea to sea and from the river of the ends of the earth. And the fact that Christ will reign over the entire world is taught by so many scriptures. Isaiah 2, 1 through 4. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. Isaiah 16, 5. Uh, Isaiah 24 through 23. Isaiah 32, uh, 1. Isaiah 41 through 11. Isaiah 42, 3 through 4. Isaiah 52, 7 through 15. Isaiah 55, verse 4. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. Micah 4, 1 through 8. 
Micah 5, 2 through 5, Zechariah 9, 9, Zechariah 14, 16 through 17. And Christ will reign supremely over this earth. Scripture teaches us that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron and he will make all of his enemies his footstool. What does that mean? That means there's not going to be any more funny business going on. He will reign with a rod of iron. In righteousness, he will do all of this. And he will make all of his enemies his footstool. Secondly, as a believer in Christ, what do we have to look forward to in this coming kingdom? The millennial kingdom will be an absolute rule of Christ, and it will involve judgment on any who oppose Jesus Christ. That's taught for us in Psalm 2, 9, Psalm 72, 9 through 11, and Isaiah 11, 4. Here's just a few aspects of Christ's millennial kingdom that we can look forward to. First of all, righteousness and justice will characterize the millennial kingdom in contrast now to the corrupt governments of our present world. In keeping with this, Psalm chapter 2, verses 10 through 12 speaks of his wrath and Isaiah 11:3 through5 gives assurance that the poor and the meek will be dealt with righteously. Because all those who enter the millennium are either resurrected saints or people who have been born again in the early stages of the millennium, particularly there will be a righteous manner of life in the world such as the world has never seen. Every wrong will be righted. Every injustice will be dealt with justly. Everything. You think of all the, the, the babies that have been murdered and slaughtered at the hands of, of wicked people, all of that will be dealt with and judged accordingly. He will reign supreme. An important part of this is the fact that Christ will be visibly present and the world will be able to see his glory, as what Matthew 24, 30 says. Psalm 72, 19 also mentions that the whole earth will be full and filled with his glory. It will also be a time of great peace when nations no longer fight each other and interpersonal relationships will be peaceful. Isaiah 2, 4 states that he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation any longer, and they will not, no longer train for war anymore. There will be universal joy, as stated in Isaiah 12, verses 3 through 4. With joy you will be draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. There is so much that as the believer in Christ, what we have to look forward to when Christ returns. I think we have this terrible, terrible idea of who Jesus is and what he's going to do. For some reason, we all seem to think that, okay, uh, the end of life is going to be us in a nightgown, floating on a cloud, strumming a harp. That's not it. If that's what you think, you are sadly mistaken. 
And you need to be in the word and find out what Jesus is gonna do when he returns. And so here's a Bible truth I'd like for you to take away with you. Jesus will reign forever and those in the kingdom will experience his righteousness. He will reign forever. I love that song uh, that uh, handles Messiah, you know, and he shall reign forever and ever. And you just hear that repeated over and over and over. Even as we sang this morning, there's no God like Jehovah. 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 And just think about that, Jesus reigning forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Here's the last thing. He will judge the world. A third thing that Jesus will do when he comes is judge the world. Let's turn over to 2 Peter chapter number three. And I wanna show you a couple things here, what Peter writes about this. Now, Peter here, he does not give us a detailed chronological outline of how it's all gonna happen, okay? He's not, he's not concerned about, you know, drawing us little charts for us to, you know, figure out, okay? His main concern is to tell us something very important, and that is that when Christ returns, he's going to judge the world. Now, look at this thing about, uh, we're going to start here in verse number 10. Well, I'll tell you what, let's back up. Let's go to, uh, let's, let's start verse number two. Look what he says. He says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, that's Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Predictions? Predictions of what? Knowing that this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world then existed, was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact. Notice what he says in verse number 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so Christ's return in judgment is absolutely certain. He says it's based upon predictions. It's been based upon uh, what the holy prophets said, the commandment of the Lord said, and the apostles have taught And the very fact that God destroyed this world once already with water is a fact. I mean, we see the the, the facts of that with the creation, right? When we see that uh, all the the flood evidence that we have, and he says, this is a fact that's gonna be, it's gonna happen again. And so it's a fact, it's absolutely certain. But notice Christ's return will be sudden. Look what he says. But the day of the Lord will come like what? A thief. If you knew when the thief was coming, you'd probably be at home, wouldn't you? You'd probably be a little bit more prepared. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is going to come as a thief. It's unexpected. And it's unexpected for all those who have what? Not repented of their sins. 
He will come like a thief. In fact, Peter here is repeating the very words of Jesus in Matthew 24, verses 42 through 43. He said, therefore, be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time the night the thief was coming, he wouldn't have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. And so just in the days prior to the flood, the people around Noah were going on about life says they were eating, drinking, giving in marriage. I mean, they were just going on with life like normal. But it says that there was impending judgment that came swiftly like that. And God's word tells us that that will be just like that when Jesus returns. His judgment will expose all the wickedness and sin. Peter warns in uh, 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 Verse number 10, look at it again. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements destroyed. Intense heat, the earth and its works will be burned up. Notice what Peter writes towards the end of verse 10. We have an interesting verb here to be exposed. Other translations read, will be found. Uh, Another one reads, will be laid bare. The idea is that those who thought that they could hide their sins from God will be exposed. No one, no matter how clever, will get away with anything. And not only that, but there won't be any place for them to hide. Because I love this. He doesn't just say the earth. What does he say? He says, the heavens will pass away. So even uh, Mr. Jeff Bezos, you know, building his rocket, firing himself up to the moon, he's not going to escape God's judgment. There will be no place to hide for those that do not know Christ. Everything will be exposed. Everything in this world and in the heavens will be destroyed by this huge judgment of fire. Only those who are in Christ will be safe. Now, Peter not only says that the earth will be burned up, but also it says that its works will be burned up. Everything that proud man has accomplished. Think about that. Look what we have built. I am man. Everything will be dissolved. Everything. It'll melt with a fervent heat. Gone. When Jesus Christ returns. And I love this. Look at this, what he says here, verse uh, 12. He says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Peter repeats himself here, as he did in verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment, destruction of the ungodly. Was Peter just getting a little old here? Kind of forgot what he was saying? No, he's trying to drive us home to a point here, saying that this is serious. This is serious that when God returns, when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to judge the earth. You need to take notice of this. Notice what else, what Peter says in verse 10. He says, the heavens will pass away with a roar. What does that mean? A roar, like a roaring lion, roar. What does that mean? The word there is a very interesting word. 
um, we find Jesus kind of reminds us also in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not pass away. Revelation 6, 14 describes this event of the heavens passing away. He says that uh, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. That word roar is only used one time in all of scripture and it's found right here. It's a very interesting word. And when you look up the word, it simply means a whir, a whizzing, a great noise. What does that sound like? What does a whir sound like? It's not like a motorbike going by. No. Best way I could describe it, that's it. That's how quickly Everything is going to dissolve in this world. Whoosh, gone. That fast. When Jesus Christ returns, it's all going to dissolve and melt away. Whoosh, just like that. As believers in Christ, what are we supposed to get out of all of this? Well, look at verses 11 through 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved... What sort of people ought you ought to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so we should be holy people living lives of godliness. We should be conducting our manner of life in holiness because we know the impending judgment that is coming. Not in the fact that we are going to be part of this judgment and the fire of God is going to be upon us because we're going to be kept safe. But he says, because we know this, we need to be living lives of holiness and godliness. Your manner of life, your conduct, how you live your life. Is it that of holiness? Is it that of righteousness? Do we live this way according as we are supposed to be living? But I like this also. It says that we should be looking forward to and hastening his coming. Are you looking for his coming? I think many of us, myself included, we get so wrapped up in everything that this world has to offer the pleasures, the, the things that we enjoy doing. And it's almost like, Jesus, yeah, I want you to come back, but can you just allow me to finish this before you come back? It says that we should be hastening the coming of our Lord, desiring it. Jesus told us that we are to be praying for his coming. Thy kingdom come, Right? And so we can look forward to the new heavens and the earth. Here's the Bible truth I want you to take away. In light of his coming judgment, live in holiness and expect his second coming. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.